You're listening to the Autumn History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today we have with us Ahmed Ragab. He is Richard T. Watson, Assistant Professor of Science and Religion at the Harvard Divinity School, as well as Affiliate Assistant Professor at the History of Science Department and the Director of the Science, Religion, and Culture Program. And he will be speaking to us today about hospitals uh, and his forthcoming book, uh, Medicine, Religion, and Charity, A History of Islamic Hospitals, which will come out around September 2015 from Cambridge University Press. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as many listeners might have noticed, if you've ever wandered around Cairo or parts of Anatolia, you'll see actually gigantic hospitals, Bimaristans, that seem to dominate the skyline of, or at least the center of uh, cities architecturally. And, you know, this has always fascinated me, and I think this is um, uh, one of kind of the amazing types of buildings and institutions of the late medieval and early modern world. And today, Ahmed, he'll speak to us about uh, about these hospitals in the late medieval and early modern period, especially in Egypt and Levant. And I think we'll take a look uh, at examining kind of who went to this, who went to these hospitals, what kind of treatment did they receive, how should we try to understand them, what kind of institutions and buildings were they, you know, and can we put these hospitals just in a medical framework, or is it uh, part of a larger societal uh, phenomenon and part of larger cultural uh, processes? This is just one part of our ongoing series on history of science in the Ottoman world and in general, the larger Middle Eastern world. So let's get into it. So why don't we begin with this this question of, you know, what were these hospitals? Who came to them? Can you just give us some basic background? As I just mentioned, you know, they're gigantic. They're often gigantic places. Can you just describe one of them? So many of these hospitals, you're absolutely right, these hospitals were um, quite common in different cities in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt and the Levant. Uh, and later after that, also in Anatolia, but also in Baghdad, in uh, in different cities, in Iraq and Iran, and basically in most of the urban centers in the um, larger Middle East or Islamic world. And um, these hospitals were extremely common that we have evidence from um, the um, early 12th and 13th century, for instance, um, a traveler like Ibn Jubair who uh, visited one of the cities and uh, particularly Homs, and he asked there if there was a hospital. Um, he wondered uh, why there was not a hospital in the city, precisely because he's seen hospitals in each and every city that he visited during his travels. Um This particular story is interesting because, again, it shows how these hospitals are common. It also shows how someone like Ibn Jubair, who was writing a travelogue that should help travelers from the Maghrib and Andalusia to um, go to on on their trips for pilgrimage, to reach or access different facilities that would help them through their travel. To him, hospitals were a significant part of this trip. 
And this story, although it happens quite early in the medieval period, it still it continues to be a very important part of the experience of any traveler in the um, larger Middle East and in the Islamic world through the early modern period. As you mentioned, these are huge institutions, uh, at least very big in size. They served um, various types of people. Um, They were all charitable institutions. They served the poor mainly, but they also allowed people to take out uh, medications from there that they took to their homes. They didn't have to stay in the actual hospital. They served as well um, pilgrims, uh, travelers, uh, as well as students, particularly in the larger cities where we have uh, big madrasas and therefore a big uh, student population. And in all these cases, um, these hospitals were a significant component of a larger charitable network that we can see in all these cities. This charitable network included uh, khanaqas, included uh, sabils and matbakhs and other kind of charitable institutions that provided um, whether lodging or food or any sort of support for travelers and for the poor in general. And as part of this, we see the hospital providing in particular um, sort of medical care for all this um, poor, uh, for the poor people. At the same time, and precisely because of its important charitable role, these hospitals were important projects for their patrons. And that's why you always see them in the center of these uh, different cities. Um, many of these hospitals are named after their founders, and they continue to be, or they continue to be uh, big monuments or memorials for their founders. Uh, to show their founders care for the people, care for the poor, and also their desire for uh, divine reward. Following up on this question of patronage, so each ruler would then almost found or build a hospital? And then, I mean, would a city like Cairo just be full of hospitals, or would there just be one or two major hospitals? How did that work? So this is a very good question, and this is one of the things that I take on um, in the book. I argue that there are differences between hospitals in Egypt, in the Levant, and Anatolia as well, um, on one hand, and hospitals in Iraq and Iran on the other. And in part, this uh, difference can be traced to even the pre-Islamic origins of this particular institution, which we can discuss in more details. But in general, in the Egypt and the Levant, for instance, Most of these hospitals are central institutions built by their patrons, by major patrons, uh, for instance, sultans in the Mamluk and uh, in the Ayyubid and Mamluk context, or uh, very important and rich merchants or walis in different cities. And in all these cases, you only have, or you almost only have, one central hospital in a given city. When a new sultan comes and this new sultan wants to build a new hospital, in many cases, the new hospital replaces the old one, sometimes physically by actually taking over the actual building and starting a new tradition, or metaphorically by becoming at the center of the city and therefore shifting the attention away from the major hospital that existed. In other cases, obviously, the old hospital is just so huge that it becomes a central part of the city that nobody can get over. And therefore, it just gets appropriated by the new sovereign. The new sovereign starts to add things to it. The biggest example is the Nuri Hospital in Damascus, Al-Bimirstan in Nuri, which was built by uh, Nuruddin Zenki. 
and um, because it was it was built in the center of Damascus, it was such a central component of the city. No one ever tried to replace this particular hospital, but you see throughout the Mamluk period and even through the Ottoman period that Nuri remains a central component of or a central uh, target of patronage for uh, different rulers and for different sultans. Um, the same happened for Al Bimristan and Mansouri in Cairo, which was built in 1285, and it's actually the focus of uh, my book. In this case, there was only one single attempt at replacing this hospital by Muayyad Sheikh, who's another um, uh, Mamluk Sultan in the early 15th century. And he tries, or in the in the middle of the 15th century, he builds another Bimaristan. It is called the Bimaristan in Muayyadi. But soon after his death, this Bimaristan really never survives. And therefore, the attention goes back to Al Bimaristan Mansouri. Um, but as he was building this Bimaristan, his main intention was indeed to replace the role of Al Bimaristan and Mansouri as the central institution inside um, the city. And Mansour Qalawun himself, who built Al Bimaristan and Mansouri, was replacing an older Bimaristan that's built by Al Nasser Salahuddin in the uh, 12th century. And in fact, Al Bimaristan and Nasiri that was built by Salahuddin was only one block away, if you will, from Al Bimaristan and Mansouri. And it almost disappears from our sources. It gets poorer and poorer, and soon enough, it just becomes completely irrelevant. Because Al Bimaristan and Mansouri survives for all this period and survives into the Ottoman period, it becomes a major site for patronage for the Ottoman rulers in Egypt afterwards, and it becomes um, the the nazir of this Bimaristan is uh, or becomes always the muhtasib of Cairo as well, and therefore linking the hospital to the major uh, administrative. Uh, and religious structures of the city. So just to clear some terms up, Nazir would be the overseer the, of this yeah, hospital yeah. and the Mahtasab would be the... The market inspector the market of the city. Inspector. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, the neighboring um, the neighboring hospital, it was uh, Salahuddin's hospital, right? Um, right next to it became irrelevant. So what would happen, just out of curiosity, what happens to these other buildings? Do they get taken over by other for other functions? Do they just start come? I mean, how much is the ho- hospital a single function building? Because often, you know, when we're talking about buildings in either the Mamluk or the Ottoman context, we, we tend to think of just, you know, the madrasa as just a center of learning. And we forget all, in the Mamluk case, all the Sufi things, you know, the vicar things and so forth that, w- that would go on there. So it, it differed from one institution to, to another. So in the case of, of Salah al-Din's, his uh, hospital was just a single building, a standalone institution uh, and standalone establishment. Uh, and uh, that was actually built uh, by or in a, in, on a palace, a Fatimid, an old Fatimid palace that Salah al-Din took over and converted into a hospital. And in doing so, it is clear that he didn't really demolish the palace and build it anew, but rather just repurpose the actual building. Um, the hospital was never officially shut, if you will. What really happens is that the awqaf or the endowments that supported it continue to decline. Um, the um, There is very little political support that goes towards these awqaf. 
there's little charities that are flowing to support the hospital and so it starts to fall into decay and soon enough the building itself will be closed and taken over by um, other people um, and or starts parts of it would be taken over by different neighboring establishments and so on. For for Bimaristan al Mansuri, it was part of a larger complex. There was a madrasa as part of it, and it was also the mausoleum um, of the founder. And so um, the mausoleum is probably the one piece of the institution that survived or that was um, that continued to survive for a long time, precisely because of the existence of the shrine inside it. Um, the hospital itself went to went into decline in the late 18th century, um, but the building continued to exist and it continued to function on limited basis. And then uh, later on in the late 19th century, it was converted into an uh, an eye hospital, an ophthalmology hospital, and actually continued to function well into the 20th century uh, until 1992. The madrasa continued to function into the 19th century as well, but with the educational reform uh, and the changes in the awqaf, the madrasa fell into ruins. So let's move on to, let's say, from the patient's experiment, experience. Uh, let's imagine that you know I'm a patient from, in let's say, the year whatever, 1200. I'm sick. What kind of disease might I have? What kind of treatment, you know, what kind of treatment might I find in the hospital? How would I be treated? What is, what would what would be my experience? This is this is an excellent question. One of the major issues that um, historians of hospitals in general think about is how would the hospital continue operating, and would not be clogged up by chronic patients, by for instance patients with disabilities, who would continue to just stay in the hospital, taking over hospital beds. The reason, the importance of this question is because we have no evidence of a a formal discharge procedure. And there's very little evidence that suggests that people would actually turn away from the hospital, although they might have been, but, but we just do not have positive evidence for this. What we see in most of these hospitals, or what I would argue was mainly happening, is that in part, these hospitals were self selective or, or, not all patients or people who suffer from diseases went to these hospitals precisely because they were part of a larger network of charity. So, for instance, a person who is blind, who is disabled, a person who is not really sick, but who is able to survive depending on other um, establishments of charity, as in a mosque or a khanaqa or another establishment, they would likely seek help there other than, rather than the hospital. Patients who frequented the hospital uh, came from different backgrounds, uh, and we have here to differentiate between patients who came to stay inside the hospital and those who came seeking medical consultation or medical help or even seeking some forms of treatment or, or medications and then left. Those who stayed in the hospital would normally be patients with no one to care for them. So the major advantage that these institutions provided in the medical community or in the medical landscape at the time is not a technological advantage like our modern institutions would offer, is not the existence of unique treatments that are not available elsewhere because we know that the marketplace had more types and different types of treatment, but it's rather the existence of people to serve the patients. So... 
people basically who would provide them with food, the patients with food, would change their clothes, change their bedding, take them to bathrooms, things like that. These were the major contributions of these institutions. And therefore, the major audience or the main audience for these institutions were precisely people who are extremely poor that falling into sickness would basically devastate them entirely. People who had no family, for instance, um, travelers who may not have been that poor, but they just did not have anybody to care for them. And this is why someone like Ibn Jubair and other travelers were always interested in these institutions. Students who were living in these big cities, but um, had their families in rural areas. And therefore, once they fall sick, it's very hard for them to survive on their own. They needed somebody to care for them. And a whole host of people who basically existed in these big urban centers at the time, who just were, you know, surviving without the extensive family support that people, say, in rural areas had, or that other people with a little better, somewhat better socioeconomic conditions had. For the rest of the population, poor people who also needed some form of charitable medical care, they could go to these hospitals, seek medical help and seek medical advice, but would normally go back to their houses take the medication sometimes for free and stay in their own houses. Many of the students, for instance, would take medications and go back to the dorms of the schools that they, uh, or of the madrasas that they were in, and therefore did not have to stay in the actual hospital. So just to give, get, get a sense, like how many beds would a hospital have? Uh, how many people could it treat it, inpatient, I guess, could it treat at a time? So th- it is very hard to estimate obviously, um, and it differs from one place to another. The bigger hospitals like um, the um, something like Bimaristan Mansouri would likely have had a couple of hundred patients. Uh, there are larger estimates than this that we find in the sources. It's probably um, safe to assume that the numbers would climb dramatically uh, in seasons of pilgrimage, for instance. Um, and then would decline after these seasons of travels go. But again, um, because although the Waqf documents state that each patient should have his or her own bed, um, this was likely not really followed, and therefore you can assume that the the capacity of the hospital was quite um, flexible in a way, that it could really increase its capacity by having a number of patients stay in the same uh, bed, for instance, or by having patients stay on the floor, it is not. Re- it is very hard to estimate uh, this capacity. But they wouldn't have like family members there or anything as they would in, let's say, some modern hospitals today or anything. I it it is unlikely. Uh, if there were family, if there there are family members, it is likely that these family members would have cared for the patient in their home. Um, we have to think about these hospitals were not pleasant places. Uh, these were places where you have a lot of poor and very sick people. Uh, we have frequent um, evidence in the sources about how they smelled um, bad, for instance. People obviously um, believe that you could get some diseases there just because of the bad miasms that existed in the hospital. So in general, these were not sort of places that you would like to go to. Um, you would try to avoid them if you could. And so it is unlikely that we'd have um, 
many family members but it is not it is possible that you'd have some children with the with women staying there it is also possible that you'd have some um you know um some family members who are dependent on the person who is staying in the hospital as well again we don't have evidence for a formal process of admission and discharge and so it's more it's a more dynamic picture than what we're used to in our modern institutions do we know what kind of diseases people might have come to the hospital with at what point would they at what point of sickness so people normally sought the hospital in either when a particular condition that had existed for a long time started to deteriorate dramatically. So, for instance, uh, people who suffered from um, some form of pain in in their heads or in their abdomen or in their loins, and then they start to have uh, blood urine or black urine or something that is very dramatic and that makes them um, very worried. This is when they start to seek medical help in general and often go to and sometimes go to the hospital or when these diseases become really debilitating like for instance severe diarrhea severe fevers all sorts of diseases that would prevent people uh, from um, going to work or from earning their living in the way that they normally do Um, so again most of these patients would be either patients old patients or patients with very severe conditions that are that they are really close to um to dying essentially what kind of treatment might they find in the hospital so if especially if they're so close to dying i mean what could be done to them right so most the evidence that we have is that these hospitals um, were Galenic humoral medical institutions. And so they followed humoral medicine. Humoral medicine um, uh, believed in, um, the, in that health is basically can be achieved through particular balances between the four humors that govern the body. And therefore, you have a list of treatments that you could give to, um, to basically change the humors that are causing this condition. So this, these are types of treatments that these patients would have gotten, including uh, all sorts of herbal preparations, for instance. They might have gotten some form of bloodletting or cupping or other forms of interventions uh, that were called evacuations that would aim at evacuating the excess humor that's causing uh, these problems. Now, a number of these patients improved, and we have evidence of people going in the hospital and then you know, leaving these hospitals, um, but also a number of them obviously died. You know, I think often we know about the humoral medicine, the Galenic type of medicine. Um, in the Islamic world, there's often something called prophetic medicine, uh, al Nabawi. Was that part of the hospital regimen? I know this is a big topic, but could you just kind of briefly, is that part of it? If so, how? what, what did that entail? This is this is a very interesting question, and um, a lot of people who discuss prophetic medicine uh, discussed it in terms of its being basically an alternative practice to Galenic medicine. The work that I've done on prophetic medicine, uh, and this is the topic of, of my current project for my new book, proves that actually it was really not a practical medical um, discipline. There's no evidence that there was ever a practitioner of prophetic medicine, that this was mainly an intellectual um, or a literary endeavor in which you find sources or you try to show how medical knowledge of the time 
uh, had some roots in the practices of the prophet or the companions. In other words, if you go through books of prophetic medicine at the time, they have almost the same types of treatment that existed in just in Galenic uh, books. So there's really, in terms of practice, there is no practical prophetic medicine that was practiced at any time almost um, during the medieval early modern period. And therefore, there's really no evidence or we cannot, asking the question was or whether there was prophetic medicine in the hospital is just, um, you know, there is no answer to this question because simply there is no practical prophetic medicine that was practiced anywhere. Um, there were writings on prophetic medicine and these writings addressed normally Galenic theory and discuss the prophetic writings in terms of Galenic theory and in terms of Galenic practice. Um, there is another aspect which is related to um, the use of um, emulates, for instance, the use of um, what um, some historians of medicine used to call magical treatments and whether these magical treatments were used in the hospital or not and whether they were part of the Galenic regiments or not. Evidence suggests that they were used in many cases in the hospital. So amulets, for instance, were likely hanging from the roofs, were sometimes given to patients. There were things that we would consider to be today to be magical treatments that were given to patients as well. Like but, magic squares and these sorts of things. For instance, yes. Um, but in many cases, even these, what we call magical treatments, had their own Galenic explanations. So... Um, some of them had um, exerted their influence on patients through affecting the psyche of patients and therefore in turn affecting their humors. Others by exerting particular influence similar to magnetism, for instance. So the same way that these scholars explained how magnets attract iron by influencing them through their forms rather than through their matter. In the same way, these magical treatments affected patients as well. And who were the doctors in these uh, doctors and nurses and or attendants in these in these hospitals? Could you just give us a bit of information about what do we know about them? How were they trained? You know, which ones went to hospitals and which one did? You know, worked in different uh, arenas. So we know quite a bit about some of these uh, um, physicians and attendants and medical practitioners in some of the institutions. So. Um, we know, for instance, that some something like Bimaristan Mansouri in Cairo, the founder stipulated that the chief physician of the uh, of the realm, basically of Cairo or of the Mamluk Empire at the time, would have to be uh, to practice inside the hospital. We know that the uh, Bimaristan Nuri in Damascus was also or had for a long time a number of important physicians who also practiced in the court and who were very famous and very significant physicians and who were very deeply committed to the practice in the Bimaristan. The important thing to remember here is that the practice in the Bimaristan was not considered as a prestigious practice for physicians. So physicians normally would not like to serve in the Bimaristan, but it served as a charitable practice. So a physician would like to practice in the Bimaristan normally with very low wages compared, for instance, to the practice in the court um, to show to, to do some form of charity to their patients. These physicians 
um, the very rich physicians likely practiced there, again, as a charitable uh, practice. Some of their students followed them in the Bimaristan and therefore were part of the uh, medical community there. But the regular physicians who practiced sort of day in and day out in the Bimaristan were normally in the lower ranks of physicians. For the most important reason is that these Bimaristans paid very little. And if you were able to establish any sort of solid practice in the market and uh, or in the court, which is, you know, um, not a very common thing, obviously, only few physicians were able to do that, you would definitely choose to practice in the market or if you're able in the court. So the Bimaristan in many cases ranked very low, sometimes similar to the market, sometimes lower than that. We have a lot of physicians who practice in the Bimaristan who also had other careers. So some of them were teachers of hadith or of Quran or of other religious sciences in madrasas. Some of them were assistants to other teachers as well. So uh, some of them were herbalists or oculists or did a number of other things in addition to being physicians in, in the Bimaristan. And we even see that it is a concern for people who ran these bimaristans, for the nadars or the overseers of the bimaristans, there is always a concern about salaries of physicians because these bimaristans did not have enough money to pay very high salaries or to be or to compete in any way with the patrons that these uh, that basically supported the highest ranks of physicians. Speaking about charity, I know that casting hospitals and understanding them within the framework of charity it is kind of one of the important points of your book. You know, why is that? How, how is that different from the previous way we understood hospitals, uh, Islamic hospitals? And, you know, what, what does it mean to see hospitals within the framework of charity? So a lot of the scholarship that, that worked on hospitals before were interested in, in what I call the medicalization of the hospital. That is basically looking at the role of the medical elites inside the hospital, physicians mainly, how powerful they were, how were they able or were they able to control the uh, operation of the Bimaristan and so on. And therefore try to chart a way, if you will, as to how these particular hospitals were the ancestors of our modern institutions. In a way, the more influence the medical elites had on these hospitals, the more uh, medicalized and even in, in the writings of some historians, more secular they are as they get away from the influence of religious scholars. However, if we look at the actual sources, the idea, the role of the medical practitioners and how powerful they are is a secondary concern to the hospital administration, to the patrons, and also to the patients who established or who frequented these establishments. The major concern here was the charitable concern. The role that these institutions played in the city was extremely important, and it was largely supporting this larger and growing urban population of people who basically do not have extensive family support, who have a lot of jobs that do not pay enough money, and who really are in need of either staying inside the hospitals if they had no families, or simply checking, going to the physician in the hospital and taking medications for free. And by the way, the majority, if you will, of the audience of the hospital or of the people who frequented the hospital would have likely taken medications and went back home. 
the hospital therefore serving essentially as a charitable pharmacy, if you will. I argue that if we look only at the medical aspect of the hospital, we're losing a lot of its history. We're dealing with it as a symbolic or a rarefied institution as opposed to a physical embodied institution that affected the lives of patients. And if we do that, we need to consider how central the charitable component in the history of these hospitals no, I think that's a wonderful point, and I, it goes uh, with with some of the previous guests on this podcast have talked about. For instance, you know, uh, Daniel Stoltz talked about astronomy in nineteenth century Egypt. How important, as, you know, it is to locate astronomy within the issue within the practice of establishing correct prayer times, um, and you know, within the daily practice of astronom- astronomical need, and not in within this like. Um, disembodied uh, debate over, you know, whether or not uh, heliocentric theory is um, against the worldview of the people at the time. So there was something interesting in what you said, which is that most of the people would just come to the hospital and, you know, just use it as a sort of uh, free pharmacy. How, how, would, how do we get, how do we know that? You know, what sources are there to talk to, about that? How do, how do we figure something like that out? So we have a, we have quite a number of accounts of people who frequented the actual hospitals. Some of them are in uh, biographical dictionaries, Wafiet, for instance. Some of them are in Chronicles. But we also have um, some formularies, drug formularies in the of the hospitals that describe the types of drugs that were used in the hospital. And many of these drugs are simply drugs that could not be used or that could not really, um, couldn't have been a concern for patients inside the hospital. So we see, for instance, preparations that existed in the hospital for dyeing hair black, or for um, cleaning teeth, or um, for uh, having a stronger erection, for instance. So all of these things, and many other drugs that exist in these formularies, and we have to remember that these formularies have a very limited number of drugs compared to contemporary formularies in the market. So they are very selective. They only select drugs that are used by the patients in, in the, the patients of the hospital. And these drugs couldn't have been possibly part of the main concerns of the people inside the hospital. They are mainly, um, they are part of this larger practice of people coming to the hospital. More importantly, we see warnings in the WACF documents about extending the hospital too much and basically making it just a pharmacy. So the fact that there is always a warning that do not transform the hospital into a pharmacy, make sure that sufficient funds are available for patients inside, mean that there was always this anxiety that most of the funding was going to all these people who take medications and just go and not stay in the hospital. I mean, that's really fascinating. Um, So we basically have I mean, in terms of written sources, Vakfia's endowment charters, we have biographical dictionaries, near anecdotal mentions of the hospital. Uh, what about the hospitals themselves? I mean, the physical building of the hospital. I mean, what can we tell from those? So we can tell quite a bit about these physical buildings because they can show us something about the uh, patient experience in these hospitals. So um, a part of a chapter of, of my book attempts to basically follow uh, a patient, if you will, inside these hospitals. So what could it, what would have you seen 
of the different wards, how patients are kept, how examination takes place, where are the pharmacies uh, and that uh, distribute drugs, uh, what are the different, and if to get to the pharmacy, um, where you need to go. And we have, you know, chose us few things about uh, the types of how people understood the diseases and how they should be separated, for instance, um, how they understood that some of the patients needed to be in, that fever patients, for instance, needed to be in a separate ward than other patients, that you had patients with uh, uh, severe conditions being located close to the bathrooms, for instance, so that it would be easier to clean them, and that um, patients with severe diarrhea were considered to be the most or in most dangerous states and therefore kept separately from the rest of the patients. We also obviously see concerns about privacy, particularly in women wards, and how these women wards were basically kept out of eyesight. So... Um, if you walk in many of these hospitals, most of the words of the patients are visible to whoever is walking in the hospital uh, and only separated by just sort of a raised level. So sort of a um, not a real separation, but just a symbolic separation that you walk from one place to the next. Women holes, on the other hand, were entirely separate, um, maybe often located uh, uh, along a courtyard. So I'm sorry, along a, a corridor. So quite away f from the um, the places where ordinary patients would walk in. We also have uh, sites for we can see sites where uh, the mentally ill patients were kept. In many of these places, they were cell-like compartments. So these patients were kept inside them. Uh, or incarcerated inside them in many cases. So um, we see concerns for cleanliness, for running water, um, for gardens. What is it that we see there? Like we see internal plumbing type things, or what is it? So in some places, yes, but it depends on how uh, on the on what survived of the building. So we see some of that. We see fountains in the middle, in the courtyard of the hospital. Many of these hospitals have are uh, built on a cruciform structure similar to madrasas as well with a, a courtyard, an open courtyard that had um, a garden, a small garden or a fountain in there. And we see plumbing, yes. Um, there were intramural uh, water systems that existed at the time that were used in some of these hospitals as well to deliver water to different parts of it. Um, so yeah, all these things show us in a way, part of the experience of patients in these hospitals. I mean, so all that is still remaining today, that you can go into, like, a hospital in Konya yeah, or yeah. elsewhere. And this, right. I mean, not all hospitals, yeah, obviously, but some, some of them yes. are just the facade now. And so yes, forth, and yeah. exactly, yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about the hospital. Often this is called an Islamic hospital, and yeah. I know that you have a slight disagreement with that. Can you, what, what do we mean by the term Islamic hospital? Uh, what makes it Islamic? What does not? I mean, where? what do we lose and what do we gain when we use that term? So I think the main thing that we lose when we use a term like this is that um, we establish a particular category that's rooted in the beliefs or practices of particular elites in the community. And we lose the connection to charitable traditions that existed in these urban centers before the Islamic context. So there is legitimacy to calling these hospitals an Islamic hospital, obviously, because most of them served only Muslim population. 
most of them were staffed by um, Muslim physicians and attendants, but there were also obviously non-Muslim physicians and attendants there, and presumably non-Muslim patients as well. Uh, whenever these the rules of being of its being exclusively for Muslims were not properly enforced, but the history of these institutions, in my opinion, need to be located in their sites. That is to say, a particular hospital existing in a specific city is an extension of a longer tradition of charitable care that existed in this given city. And sovereigns become or are often under the pressure to continue existing practices of charity. And therefore, we see a continuity of sorts between Islamic hospitals in Egypt, the Levant, and Anatolia with the Byzantine institutions, for instance. We see a separate sort and a different type of continuity between hospitals in Iraq and Iran, for instance, with pre-Islamic practices there. And because of these different pre-Islamic origins, we see some form of difference in how these institutions looked like. Obviously, there's a lot of communication, but again, there are some sorts of differences, particularly in the early medieval period. Could you just give us an example of the influence or the carryover from, let's say, a Byzantine or Sasanian? So the major the major thing for the, the the major carryover from the Byzantine institution that carries in the Islamic practices in Egypt, the Levant, and Anatolia is the centrality of the institution. Most of these institutions were very central. They were supported by the empire or by the church, and they served the urban population of a particular city. They were largely their main message was a charitable message to the urban population of this center. And we see the same practice in the Islamic period as well. Most of these institutions were, again, sponsored by major um, sovereigns or major patrons. They were central institutions. They were meant to serve the larger urban population. And they really became a significant project for their patron. So, for instance, we see uh, patrons in Egypt and the Levant paying a lot of attention to their hospitals, going, visiting these hospitals frequently, um, making huge establishments and making sure that these hospitals are really at the center of their cities. On the other hand, the tradition from which hospitals in Iraq and Iran came from is not exactly Sassanid, but rather Syriac tradition. We don't have evidence of Sassanid uh, tradition of institutions of collective care that could resemble what we call hospitals, but we have the tradition of smaller infirmaries that Syriac that were sponsored by the Syriac Church and that were sometimes patronized by the Sassanid rulers as a favor to their Syriac physicians. In the same way, Abbasid rulers, for instance, um, sponsored and patronized some of these institutions under the insistence of their own physicians, and they were largely institutions that are smaller in size that were central to the physician rather than to the patron. So in the book, I make a, a, a comparison between near-contemporary hospitals in Baghdad and in Egypt, uh, in the capital of Egypt, of the Egyptian province at the time, and we see that in Egypt under the Ptolemies, for instance, the hospital is central, central. the emir, uh, it's the central project for the emir. He goes there every single week. It has a huge endowment. While on the other hand, in Baghdad, a chief physician is urging the caliph and the caliph's mother and the vizier and another general, each one of them is building a hospital, and they don't even show up for its inauguration. 
So it's an important project, but it appears to be one that is far more important for the physician than it is for the sovereign. The result is multiplicity of hospitals in Baghdad, for instance, and single hospitals in the major Levantine or Egyptian centers. I'm just wondering, is there hospitals built by non-sovereign, uh, I mean, basically not by rulers, by viziers, lower types of people, very rich doctors? Me, me, most of them are in, in uh, the Iraqi and Iranian regions rather than in Egypt and, and the Levant. Yes, you have hospitals built by viziers and by really many other people, generals, major generals built these hospitals as well. So I think we have a very nice contrast, you know, between the Abbasid and the Mamluk or Abbasid and Ayyubid type, um, you know, practices regarding hospitals, practices of patronage. Um, What if we look forward to the Ottoman period, to the early modern period? You know, what do we find there? I know that, you know, we have major hospitals in Edirne and Bursa uh, and across the Anatolian uh, plateau, often, you know, from this medieval, late medieval period. Um, what were the role of hospitals in the Ottoman period? And I know this is a giant question, but just maybe briefly. And then it seems often that after the 16th century, you don't really have these major hospital uh, constructions anymore, at least in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, you still see some hospitals after the 16th century. It's just, you're probably right that they're not as huge and, and uh, as central uh, as they were before that. Um, and I think the main explanation for this is it can come from looking at the hospital within a larger map of charity. So the hospital is not doesn't stand on its own. It's part of a larger set of establishments that people build in these in these cities, and these different establishments of charity aim to support the poor. And in a way, the emphasis on one aspect of this map as opposed to the other doesn't really signify a significant change in the charitable attitudes, but it's simply it happens because of different ways of how people think about what charity can do. So after the 16th century, we should, we see rises of different or more elaborate charitable institutions that do different roles. Hospitals continue to survive, but they are no, no longer really a central piece of the charitable uh, landscape, if you will. So I wouldn't say that there is a decline in the hospital or in on the hospital practice. Uh, again, many of these hospitals continue to survive and uh, continue to prosper under the Ottoman Empire. Uh, for instance, Al-Bimaristan Mansouri again in Cairo was um, revamped and renovated in the uh, early 18th century. And a lot of funds went to went into that, and so there was a lot of interest in these hospitals and in maintaining them. But there were also many more actors that were now filling the landscape of charity. So you had starting. For, there is a lot of work, for instance, on um, rich women and the role during this period. You have a lot of merchants, a lot of scholars a lot of generals and and state officials who become influential in the making of this charitable landscape. And so one might say that the the central hospital with all the um, resources that it required in order to, uh, to be established was no longer that attractive 
uh, of a project. And maybe the need for it was not as significant as it was before, just by virtue of the um, decentralization of the charitable landscape and also the rise of many other institutions uh, at the time. By the late 18th and then in the 19th century, obviously, we have a different sort of move towards um, changing the structures of these hospitals with the introduction of new types of medicine and medical practice in the region. So where where might a poor, sick person who has no one to take care of them, you know, if they need medical charity, where might they find it, you know, if they're in a city that it doesn't have this large, you know, sultanic um, hospital complex? So many of these cities had a lot of infirmaries, oh. smaller infirmaries, if they don't have these huge um, complexes. So, um, but there were also a lot of physicians who were offering charitable care. Uh, but then again, in many cases, you know, for these patients, just going to a mosque or going to a khanaqa or going to the the sort of the uh, charitable meals that were now being offered everywhere in big cities, you know, eating food there and going to these mosques and going to madrasas and so on, staying there might have helped them in many cases. So I would argue that there were there are continuities of uh, charitable care. It's just the image of it changed with the change of the charitable landscape in general. So just one last question, kind of to wrap up this this conversation. I think today we've really kind of emphasized, you know, the necessity of placing the history of medicine and medical care, you know, in within the larger uh, cultural practices of the society uh, in which it's located, and often within the very cities in which it's located. I mean, do you have any thoughts or any suggestions as to kind of, as, you know, more and more scholars kind of start writing a new history of science or a new history of medicine for the Islamic world, what should people keep in mind? Um, what preconceptions should we dispose of or be wary of as we write this? I think the major preconception or, or basically danger in, in the study of history of medicine or history of science in general is theology, is to basically look at how medicine, quote unquote, developed to become what we know today. We need to think of medicine as, um, as a particular type of, or, or this specific medicine as a particular type of healing practice that aimed at alleviating specific problems that these patients had. And without understanding the patient needs, the patient's communities, and what people complained about, it is really hard to understand how these physicians or how medicine worked in general. So what I would argue for is more of an embodied, patient-oriented, if you will, history of medicine. And I focus on embodied again because it is rooted not only in patients' complaints, but also in the actual practice of physicians. How did physicians understand or practitioners understand their craft? What did they want to do? And if we do that, then we open up the study of history of medicine to many other things. What we call, again, what we called in the beginning magical treatments, which are sometimes excluded from the study of history of medicine because of this teleological view. We want a medicine that resulted in our medicine is a problem. The thinking about these um, hospitals only in terms of there being quote-unquote medical or medicalized institutions is also a problem. We need to think about how medicine was uh, presented itself to the people, how it was a practice that is um, 
that is needed by specific populations and that intended to serve these particular populations and how these physicians as practitioners of this type of art or technology, if you will, um, modified, thought about their practice in terms of the needs of their patients and the changing um, framework of um, their practice in general. I think those are all wonderful suggestions. Um, thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, for those of you that are interested in learning more, uh, there will be a brief bibliography uh, available on the website. Uh, and please go to ottomanhistorypodcast.com for more information and for more episodes. Uh, thank you again, Ahmed. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you.